Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, today is uh, one, of the, one of the biggest days, one of the actually holiest days of the entire year. Um, and uh, it's called Hoshana Rabbah. And what, what makes it so great is that it says that um, our tradition is that on Rosh Hashanah, the sort of the, the destiny, if you will, um, of the new year is written. On Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And then it says it's delivered on Hoshana Rabbah. So that's today. So, so uh, if, you, if you think about that, that, that okay, that says, that says that that's sort of like important. But what does it actually mean that it's delivered? Because wasn't God there by the writing and wasn't God there by the sealing? Right? He was there on Rosh Hashanah and he was there on Yom Kippur. He's there all the time. So why does it have to be delivered? Or, or a perhaps better question is, who exactly is it being delivered to? And, and then you get a, a, a fuller understanding of the sort of the enormity of what this day is. Because on Hoshana Rabbah, it is delivered, but it's not delivered to God. God delivers it to the angels. Meaning to say that the, that the orders for the year are actually handed over to the angels to begin executing them, to, to begin implementing them. So, so that's, a, that's a very big deal. In other words, instead of saying um, that it's written on Rosh Hashanah and sealed on Yom Kippur and delivered on Hoshana Rabbah, perhaps a better bit of way of expressing it is it's written on Rosh Hashanah, it's sealed on Yom Kippur, and the start button is pressed on Hoshana Rabbah. And so, so that's, that's what's going on today. And yet today is, is still a day where we can influence the outcome of the entire year. So, so, so as Rabbi Wolfson points out, something very beautiful, on each of the seven days of Sukkot, and, and by the way, each day corresponds with another one of our, 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 greatest, um, our greatest figures, and uh, known as the Ushpizen. So on the first day it's Abraham, second day it's Yitzchak, third day it's Yaakov, fourth day it's Moshe, fifth day it's Aaron, sixth day it's Yosef, and today, the last day, the seventh day, it's King David, David HaMelech. So that's, that in itself is, is, is worthy of, of, of great discussion. But nonetheless, the idea is like this, that on today, Hoshana Rabbah, each of the Previous six days, you circle the, the bima, which um, sort of corresponds with the mizbeach, with the altar in the holy temple, um, one time. But today, we circle the altar seven times. And as Rabbi Wilson points out, those seven circlings on Hoshana Rabbah parallel the seven circlings of the city of Yericho, of Jericho, when all the walls fell down. So in other words the weight of the prayers of Hoshana Rabbah have that ability to topple any final negative verdict that might still be standing. And so that's, that's an aspect of the power of this day. Um, I heard from either Reb Shlomo or Reb Eli Chaim, his twin brother, um, Shalom, that the, either the Baal Shem Tov or maybe it was the Maggid of Mezrich, uh, the Baal Shem Tov's successor, Divided up all the holidays, meaning to say that among his their their greatest disciples, 
each was given over a, a holiday that, that, that they would be sort of like the, the keepers of, or, or, you know, they would um, specialize in that. And I heard that Bavav, that Hoshana Rabbah went to Bavav. So, anyway, Bavav is a, actually a relatively new dynasty, but I guess the forebears of Bavav got it. Uh, so, I want to share some teachings and some stories about Sukkis and about just some, some very new, deep ideas that, that I've learned that, that I think are very, very special. But let me just um, start by saying that there's something going on between me and um, Hoshana Robin, the Los Angeles Police Department. <laughs> so, so I got pulled over by the police this morning again on Hoshana Rabba. But before I tell you what happened, let me go back. I'm trying to figure out how many years ago this was. It, let's say it was five years ago. I don't know exactly, but it was approximately five years ago. There's a big intersection in this neighborhood. I'll just tell you what it is, just in case you know it. It's um, Beverly Drive and Wilshire. It's actually this massive intersection. And I was getting ready. It, was, it, was, it had just become Hoshana Rabbah, and I was getting ready to, to learn and, 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 and help teach all night because it's 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 um, it's uh, it's a custom to stay up all night learning on Hoshana Rabbah, and thank God we did that again this year for I think approximately the twentieth year in a row. About that, even before the Happy Minion, I, we had all night learning on Hoshana Rabbah. And anyway, so I'm about to make a left turn at this big intersection, and I notice that there's a police car next to me. You know, which is fine, you know, I've got nothing to hide. And the light turns, I'm waiting for the light to turn, and I make a left turn onto Wilshire, and the police car turns on its lights and pulls me over. And I can't figure out, what did I do, you know? I, I saw the police car there beforehand. You know, I certainly made a normal turn. I waited for the light to, to turn. I didn't do anything reckless or dangerous, but somehow he pulls me over. And he says to me, didn't you see me? And I said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I did see you. He said, how could you have made that turn? I said, what are you talking about? There was nothing odd about the left turn that I had made. He said, there are five signs at that intersection that say no left turns. And he said, didn't you see them? I, I said, no. Now, I've got to tell you something. Every time to this day, I'm at that intersection on Beverly Drive and Wilshire. I look up and I count just to make sure I'm not imagining this story. There are five signs. <laughs> five. I have never in my life seen so many signs at one intersection. Let's say no left turn. And you want to hear something even more hilarious? Two or three of them are neon. <laughs> and so I told him that, look, I, I saw you. I didn't try to do anything, you know, whatever. I just, I just didn't see it. You know, this is at the point. And, but he, uh, he, was not, um, he was not persuaded and he gave me a ticket. Anyway. So this morning, 
This morning, I, I just finished, we started at 11.30 p.m. We learned till 5.30 in the morning straight. Then I went to davening. That was about almost a two-hour davening. So then I get into my car, and I'm just driving a few blocks back to my house. All of a sudden, I see a police car, and he turns on his lights, and, and they pull me over. I'm thinking, what did, what did I do? What did I do? Like, in two blocks, you know? I do, I just So he says, what the other guy said, he said, he said, do you know why I'm pulling you over? I said, uh, no. And then he told me that my, um, my license plate was expired. <laughs> and the weird thing was, just last night I opened up a letter, but I guess it must have been a reminder, like a second call or something like that. So I had no idea that, um, I had to, that my registration was delayed. Anyway... He says, okay, well, let me uh, process this. You know, luckily I had my, my, my license and my, and my registration and my insurance. And he goes back to the car and then he comes back and he says, he says, I'm going to cut you a break this time. And I was like, ah, thank you, God. So who knows? Who knows? Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a good sign, God willing, for the year, you know? But it was crazy, like being pulled over again on Hoshana Rava, you know? So, anyway, I'll tell you another story just before we get to some of the teachings. I'd been sleeping in the sukkah, and uh, about the, after the first night or so, maybe it was the second night, of sleeping in the sukkah, uh, the kids and, and, and my wife Judy noticed that um, my hand is, like, covered with insect bites. And also, like, my elbows and everything like that, like, lots and lots of bites. And so uh, she made an appointment for me to go to the, uh, a dermatologist because she was concerned. She didn't know what it was. And um, so I go in and I got a, a nurse practitioner. And, you know, I, I don't have a I, I tend to get a lot of tickets and I only had a certain amount of change. So I was betting that this would be a quick appointment. So I put a, only put a certain amount of change in the in the parking meter. I'm thinking I'm going to be in and out, you know. Well, they give me this huge amount of papers to fill out, you know, because I haven't been there for a while, even though I wasn't a new patient there. I haven't been there for a while, so I'm filling out all the new patient kind of stuff. And ah, okay, so I'm sitting in the office, and the nurse nurse practitioner comes in. She's this Japanese woman, and um, very nice. And she's she she says, well you know, what's going on? So I show her the bites and I said, I, I said to her, I said, you know, she said, well, um, how did you get that? How'd you get those? And I said, well, I've been sleeping outside. And she just kind of like looks at me like, yes, you know, like that sort of demands a further explanation. And I thought to myself, you know what? To explain the entire holiday of circus right now, to this person, I'm going to get a ticket. I know I'm going to get a ticket. It's like I simply don't have the time. And not that she necessarily wanted to hear about it, but I just, I just didn't want to go there. So I didn't say anything. And then she said to me, kind of like a camping thing? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, okay, that's, that, that settled that question and we can move on. But there was one other thing that just kind of like, 
it was sort of like this private little moment of like, I don't know what to call it, like performance art or something like that, which was that the very last question on the, on the, on the final form that I had to fill out was, it just asked, it said, you're going to the doctor, right? This is a doctor's appointment. And the last question was, hobbies. And then a, a blank spot. And something made me write golf. Now, I haven't picked up a golf club in my life. But I thought to myself, you know, I'm in a Beverly Hills dermatology office. I'm going to write golf, you know. I don't, why? I don't know. But there it is. So, um, so anyway, she, she just, the, the bites were not serious at all. Although, what, 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 there was one moment where she speculated that they might be from rat mites, which was a little bit, you know, I, I said, well, you know, what, what, is that, is that like bubonic plague type stuff? You know, because the bubonic plague started with, I think, fleas on rats, actually. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. I mean, they're mites on rats, but no. No, that, other than that, it's fine. They're, they're, they're harmless. I'm like, are you sure? She's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Sounds good. I got to get to my car. And thank God there's no tickets. So um, anyway, so let me, let me tell you some, some teachings about Sukkis. I learned something amazing, really amazing, uh, I have to thank uh, Dorothy Melvin for this, and she heard it from Rabbi Yitzchak Gaines uh, in the name of the Ari. So, listen to this. So, the so I heard in the name of the Ari that the last chauffeur blast of Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, really, we just blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And, but Yom Kippur culminates, it finishes, with one long, loud shofar blast. So it's just one blast, okay? And that's the Tekiah Gedola, which means like the great blast. And by the way, that, that sort of correlates with, with the final, with the, with, with the arrival of Mashiach, basically. Because... Our tradition is, is that when Mashiach arrives, that he'll be heralded, so to speak, by a, a, a long blast of the shofar. And that, and that the origin of that shofar, the, the Medrash says, will come from, if you remember, when, 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 when Isaac was put on the altar to sacrifice, right? Which is a long, long, very, very deep, amazing uh, Incident, but um, suffice it to say, God never said kill Isaac, but he was supposed to be put on this altar, and he was. And then Hashem says, you know, leave him alone. Then all of a sudden they, they heard there was a, a ram caught in the thickets nearby, and they end up sacrificing this ram. But th- this ram is quite amazing in, 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 in Torah thought. They say this ram was actually created like on the sixth day of creation. And that 
Well, there's a lot that has to do with this ram. But they say that his, one of his horns, I forget if it was the right or the left right now, but one of his horns was blown when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. And the other one is going to be blown when Mashiach comes. So this final blast on Yom Kippur parallels or sort of like is anticipating the final blast heralding the perfection of the world. Okay. So the Ari says that the final blast of Yom Kippur turns into the Sukkah of Sukkot. So keep in mind that the holiday of Sukkot comes right after Yom Kippur, right? Just a few days after. So somehow this shofar blast gets transformed into the sukkah. That in itself is very, very deep thought. But now listen to this follow-up thought, okay? Which explains it on a mathematical level, okay? So this is from the Ohelish shame. And he was a very great, he's someone who's new to me. I had to research him some more and find out more about his Torahs. But he was a very prolific, amazing rabbi uh, at the time of the Nazis, and they burned all of his writings. So he's not nearly as well known as he should be. But some of his teachings survived, and this is one of them. Okay. So he says, if you take the word shofar, and you take the Atbash of it. Now remember, we've, we've studied Atbash over the years. That's one of these amazing forms of gematria that's spelled out in the Gomorrah, right? And just to review, Atbash is, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If you take the first 11 letters, and then underneath them, you put the next 11 letters, so that um, you've got two rows of 11 letters. But you arrange them in such a way where the first letter, Aleph, is on top of the last letter, Taf. So that's supposed to At. And the second letter, Bez, is over the second to last letter, Shin. That's Bash. So Atbash. It's called that. And so the third letter is over the third to last letter. The fourth letter is over the fourth to last letter. And you can take any word and you can find which letter it correlates with. What's the inverse, if you will, of that letter? Okay? So that's the method of Atbash. And this is a way of accessing amazingly profound depths within words in the Torah. And sometimes you just Atbash a single letter in it, and then just all sorts of amazing things. So now listen to this. If you take the word Shofar, and you take the atbash of the word shofar, and you take the gematria of the atbash, okay, let's just review those steps. You take shofar, you exchange the letters of shofar to their corresponding atbash letters, and now with that new set of letters, you take the gematria of those letters, it comes out and equals the gematria of the word sukkah. So, here you see contained within shofar is sukkah. And now, just to revisit the teaching of the Ari, that the last blast of the shofar on Yom Kippur turns into the sukkah. 
So it's, it's really, that's an amazing, amazing correlation. Now, I'm going to get further into this thought in a moment, but just to give you a further appreciation of what's going on here. I told you that the last blast of Yom Kippur, when we say Tekiah Gedola, that that correlates with the great shofar blast at the time of Mashiach. The sukkah is also a messianic construct. Meaning to say that it says in the Gomorrah, uh, in Baba Basra 75a, you can look it up, we were learning it just this past night, that Hashem is going to take the skin, the hide, of the Leviathan, in Hebrew we say the Leviathan, which is this giant, enormous fish, or whale, or just but beyond, okay? And that he's going to use the hide of the Leviathan to make a sukkah for the righteous in the end of days, and throw this amazing party for the righteous. So you see, the celebration of the perfection of the world revolves around the sukkah. So now again, let's revisit this idea that the shofar blast of Yom Kippur turns into the sukkah. Now we've got another level of appreciation. Not only does it correspond numerically, because the atbash of shofar, the gematria of the atbash of, of, of shofar is the gematria of sukkah. But you see that the messianic era heralded by this great shofar blast will signal the arrival of the great sukkah. So they're one in the same. So this is just, just one of zillions of examples of the perfection of the Torah. How everything is, is ridiculously connected in, in the most amazing ways. Now, I was learning this last night and I was wondering, like someone was asking me about this teaching because since I've heard this teaching, I've been wanting to share it. So I was sharing it with, with someone and he, he was asking me about it and I said, you know something? I have to continue to work through this because I don't know if... if if it's just that shofar equals sukkah, and that's basically the extent of it, or if there's levels of meaning involved in the fact that you're taking the atbash, and then the gamatri of the atbash, and then that gamatri equals sukkah. In other words, is that just the math to go from shofar to sukkah, or are there levels of meaning connected to the fact that you have to derive it in steps? You follow. So I was trying to process that thought. And then someone last night said something very, very special, which I really liked. He said, he said that it's not that the shofar is equal to the sukkah. It's that the shofar becomes the sukkah. And so, in other words, that suggests or necessitates a level of unfolding and transformation and the steps that you have to go through to derive sukkah from shofar seems to be very much part and parcel of the teaching itself. 
So I really appreciated that. I thought that that was really, really cool, you know? So now let's go further in this teaching. It's not over yet. So amazingly, if you've been listening to these talks and sort of like filing away some of these key numbers, what number is it that goes from shofar to sukkah? And the number is, amazingly, 91. Now, 91 is a really, really important number in Torah thought for the reason that it's the combination of two of the major names of Hashem. One symbolizing God being the master of heaven, the other symbolizing God being the master of earth. So, in other words, this number 91, which is the Yudke Vavke, plus the name Aleph Dalad Nun and Yud, and that's 26 plus 65, equaling 91. And again, it's, it's God being master of infinity, master of nature, heaven and earth, coming together in one name, in one number, rather. And if you look at the construct of the shofar and the sukkah, you see this amazing heaven and earth component to each. Because when the shofar is blown, you sort of, you feel God's presence, Around you, that's like heaven, but there you are on earth, right? Not only that, but it says in the Torah that God blew the soul of Adam into his body. And so, I believe it's the Sfas Emma says that on Rosh Hashanah, when the shofar is being blown, that's you getting a new soul. Because remember, the world... Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the creation of human beings. So when the shofar is being blown, that's also the recreation of yourself. So that's your soul being blown into you. Again, heaven and earth coming together at one moment. So it makes sense that the gematria of the atbash of shofar is 91. And it also makes sense that we're talking about atbash, since we're talking about this relationship between above and below. Right? Heaven and earth. Now, by sukkah, sukkah, when it's spelled with a vav, that's the full spelling of sukkah, is also 91. Now, you don't have to derive that. That's just straight out 91. And, of course, sukkah is also this fusion of heaven and earth. Because when you're standing in the sukkah, inside, the walls represent this dimension. And yet, when you look through the schach, you look through the, the roofing, Right? That, that see-through roofing, you have to be able to see the stars in the heavens. Right? So again, the sukkah itself represents that fusion between heaven and earth together. And so again, it very appropriately, 91. So, it's just, there's no, it's, it's endless. It's absolutely endless. What's going on in, in terms of, in terms of the mitzvot? In terms of each one of these things, you know? Okay. Now, I want to I go on to another thought, which will pick up on some of the things that we're talking about and extend them a little bit further. But just to change uh, tax a little bit right now. So, we discussed it last week. This period, and it says it in, in our prayers for, for this holiday... This period is known as Man Simchasenu, which means the time of our happiness. 
the time of our simcha, the time of our joy. So now, I would like to suggest something that came to me, but, you know, after I say these things, they, they seem so obvious that I, 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 I have to think that these are very old teachings, just no one ever told me, right? So, anyway, uh, this is a level that we haven't discussed yet of why this period is called Zman Simchasenu, the time of our, of our happiness. Now, to get this thought, we have to review the Jewish concept of time and how time progresses. So, time in the Torah understanding is not a linear construct, meaning to say, it's not that that you could draw a line on the floor and say, you know, past, and then go to the other side of the room and draw another line and write future. And basically, time travels in a straight line from the past through the present into the future. That's not the Jewish construct. The Torah idea is that time actually unfolds in a spiral shape. Right? So if you can just imagine a spiral unfolding and going toward the heavens, right? Now, if you can imagine um, within that spiral at at different sort of like uh, intervals, there are certain days which shoot through time. Imagine like a, a wellspring of energy which starts maybe on the bottom of the spiral and goes on a straight line throughout the entire widening spiral. Okay? So the idea is that as you travel around the spiral and you hit that day, right? Which is, let's say it's Sukkot, which is a holiday. We're not historically marking an anniversary of this day, what we're doing is we're actually re-entering the day itself, which whose energy shoots through time. So every time we enter that time period, we are actually entering the original, authentic energy of that day. Right? So, so that in itself is a very amazing thought. And that's, that's true for all the holidays. So, when you're entering into Yom Kippur, that's, that's the original energy of Yom Kippur. Same thing with Rosh Hashanah. You're entering into the day that Adam and Chava were created in the Garden of Eden. The day they ate from the Tree of Knowledge. The day they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. You know, so, so each of the holidays are very, very powerful wellsprings of energy from the beginning of time. The same with your birthday. So it's all very important in your birthday also, because they say that, that the stars are aligned. You know, the constellations, the, the, the mazolos are aligned so that the flow of energy down is where it was when you were born. So you have this increased power to bless. So there's a tradition that on your birthday you should give people blessings because you have an increased sort of power on that day, spiritually speaking. So now, let's revisit this idea and apply it to Sukkot, and let's remind ourselves of the question. 
Why is Sukkot referred to as Zman Simchasenu, the time of our joy? Okay. So, you can say, well, since Sukkot is a very joyous holiday, and we're re-entering that wellspring of joy, which is shooting through time, it's the time of our joy. Okay, but I want to say something deeper. Okay? Which is the following. Now, we have to introduce a new concept now. There's something in... um, Torah, known as the Or Choser. The Or Choser means the returning light, or the reflected light. And this is like a, an amazing, beautiful concept. So, so, what it means is that there are certain events which haven't happened yet in terms of the way we've experienced the unfolding of time. But remember, God exists outside of time. So even though they haven't happened to us yet, on the cosmic scale, they have already occurred. Since the future exists before God, just like the past and the present does. So for instance, to give an example, this amazing party that God is going to throw in Olamaba for celebrating the fixing and the perfection of the world that we mentioned when he's going to take the, the skin of the Leviathan and make this sukkah, right? From God's point of view, that's already happened. So in other words, if you imagine this spiral, this unfolding spiral getting larger and larger as it points upward, Right? One of the spokes on that, at the top, is this party, this celebration which is going to happen in the sukkah, which is completely connected to sukkahs, which is celebrating the perfection of the world. So what I'm suggesting is the following. One of the reasons, one of the levels why this is the time of our joy is because we are getting not just the initial wellspring of energy, of happiness throughout time from its originating point, but we're also receiving the or choser, the reflected light of this future event that's going to happen, and we're receiving some of that energy now along this, this uh, conduit called Sukkot, which, which shoots through time. So we're getting it actually from both directions. And so since this will be the most tremendous celebration ever, and it's taking place in a sukkah, we're already experiencing an aspect of it's a reflected light right now. So that's another level of understanding why this is the time of our joy. Now, there's a very interesting teaching that I want to tell you. It's in the Gomorrah. And there was a, a, a uh, one of the greatest sages is named Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was teaching his students and he was talking about how when Hashem brings the third Beis Amigdash, the holy temple that we're waiting for, which is synonymous with the perfection of the world, that the gates are going to be made out of these enormous, enormous pearls. In fact, 
This is where the idea of the pearly gates of heaven, I'm sure, comes from. Okay, this is from the Gomorrah. So, so one of the students was listening to this, and, you know, anyone who knows anything about pearls knows that, you know, even if you get a jumbo pearl or something like this, you can't make giant gates out of pearls. It, 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 it's, it, does, it won't happen. Okay? So, he mocked Rabbi Yochanan. Right? And then, it says that this student was on a ship. And while he was on the ship, he had a vision. And he saw the angels crafting the very gates that Rabbi Yochanan was describing. And as soon as he could, he went back to Rabbi Yochanan and he said to him, you know something? You were right. You were right. I, I, I didn't believe you, but I saw it myself with my own eyes. Now, Rabbi Yochanan's response I think is fantastic because what, what you would imagine, what I would imagine, Rabbi Yochanan would respond is, okay, good, I'm so glad that you get it now. You know, I know that you didn't get it and now you get it and that's so cool. Here's what he said. Fool! You had to see it in order to believe it? That was his response. <laughs> And I think that that's great. I think that that's great, you know, because anyone who's really a student of life knows that surprises are actually the rule. They're actually the rule. And, you know, what, what, there are just so many examples of this. And my, I've, I've got a few current favorites. If you're, if you're like an Internet uh, news junkie like I am, one of the things that you see periodically is, to this day, and I'm talking about 2012 right now, all of the new species of animals that are regularly being discovered. The weirdest looking animals. And they're finding them on a regular basis. Just Google new animals found. And, you know, see what you, see what you find. Frogs that have the, like, the most bizarre patterns on them. Fish that are outrageous looking. They just found a new monkey, which is really weird looking. I mean, it kind of looks like a person. It's really weird. So, so you think at this point we found all the animals, at least all the big animals. We have not. All right. Not only that, but this, this example I really like, too. This was in the New York Times. You can, you can look at it. September 5th in the science section in the New York Times. And what, 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 what they found is that in DNA, now just to give you some context right now, many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the Human Genome Project. And what they were doing was mapping the whole DNA of a human being. And they finished a few years ago. And it was like this... I mean, it was one of the crowning achievements of modern science that they finished mapping human DNA. This was incredible. It really, it really was incredible. And there was part of DNA 
that, that, you know, because they were describing the DNA, that they described as um, junk. In other words, there was the part that they understood, and that's the word that they used, junk. There was the part that they understood, and they said, yeah, yeah, there's this other stuff, but that's just junk. Right? They have now found out that 95% of the operative DNA is what they previously called the junk. This is after they finished, after they finished the Human Genome Project. (laughs) They have now found that all of the meat, basically, is in this thing that they call junk, and that there is so much information to process, that they're just at the very threshold of looking into, that the head of the project from Harvard and MIT said, the amount of data is mind-explosive. It will explode your mind. Just what's contained in what they used to refer to as junk. So anybody who calls themselves intellectually honest, who thinks that we basically know anything, is kidding themselves. It's sheer arrogance. It's it's nothing more than that. And just to give you one more example, more quickly... Physicists have identified something called dark matter. And they say that dark matter, and by the way, you know what the definition of dark matter is? It's, I don't know. That's the definition of dark matter. They don't know what it is. You ready for this? They say that dark matter, now if you take the, all of the stars and all of the planets, right, in the universe. Wow, that's a lot, right? That's trillions and trillions of things way bigger than Earth. If you take all the stars and all the galaxies, that accounts for about 5% of the known universe. In other words, the category of dark matter is approximately 95% of the universe. And again, what's the definition of dark matter? I don't know. Can you imagine the leading scientists of the day say that they don't know what comprises 95% of the universe? That's on the macro level. On the micro level, they say that the DNA, which they call junk, now they realize is filled with gold and genetic information that they haven't even begun to process yet. So from the highest to the smallest, we've got no clue. So when Rabbi Yochanan says to his student, fool, you had to see? You had to see it to believe it? God in his greatness has communicated certain truths to us. That's what the Torah is. That's what halacha is. That's what the mitzvahs are. There's certain truths. We're way ahead of the curve. Way ahead with the curve. Way ahead. Way ahead. And we can trust it and we can hold on to it because every, everything keeps on circling back to it. You know, I was talking with someone and uh, he told me that, um, told me he was starting to keep some, some more mitzvahs and um, 
it kind of led to a bit of a conflict with someone who he was close to. And uh, this person said to him, do you even know why you're doing this? And there are more specifics I'm leaving out, but kind of pinned him on a certain thing that he was trying to do relating to Shabbos. Do you even know why you're doing this? And he told me that he broke down in tears because he tried to explain it and wasn't able to explain it. And I I told him, I said, you know, that's okay that you weren't able to explain it. I said, you know, sometimes the soul outpaces the mind. And that's okay. That's okay. We have this experiential aspect of it where if it feels right, and that's not for everything. You know what? You know what I love? I love to go to Bloomingdale's and steal. It feels right. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyone who's sat at a Shabbos table or had some soup, <laughs> you know that it's more than soup. <laughs> Somehow you sense this is more than soup. And that experiential aspect of it sometimes outpaces the mind. But it's a validation and it's a confirmation that what's going on is something that's very real. And we can rely on it and we can trust it. And we shouldn't be like, like you know, there's an expression, don't, the, don't let the tail wag the dog. So what does that mean? really a dog should be in charge of the tail. The dog should wag the tail. But sometimes if the tail is wagging the dog, that means that the, the inferior aspect of a construct is running the show. So, so let's not be like tails wagging the dog. Sometimes we have to allow our souls to lead the charge. And to trust that, that it's in sync with the truth of the universe. And that the Torah is reliable. You know, I, there's a book that I've been wanting to read. And uh, I, I haven't gotten around to it. So I just thought to myself, you know what, I wanna just, I'll just look up a book review on it and just kind of get, get a summary of it. So it's this book called Startup Nation, which you may know, and it's, it chronicles the, um, the, uh, the venture capital stuff going on in Israel today, especially in the high-tech sector. And I can't quote you the statistics from the book. You can look it up online. Uh, I read the uh, Wall Street Journal book review on it. It's ridiculous what is going on in Israel today. In terms, of, in terms of the number of patents, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Microsoft is there. Google is there. Intel is there. Everything is there. The whole computer industry is there. Many of the greatest breakthroughs in the high-tech industry are all happening in Israel. And when they talk about the number of patents per capita, 
Israel outstrips basically every single nation except America in the world. And America is like, how many times the size of Israel? And the amount of venture capital dollars going in is more than all of Europe combined, including France and Germany. There's something, and I'm really trying to talk about this in an objective way as opposed to a rah-rah way. Certainly this is a great source of pride and, you know, and, and, and should be, should be. The levels of accomplishment, considering this is a nation that's brand new and is composed of immigrants and refugees from all over the world who's been at war since the nation started and has had to dedicate a, the, the lion's share of its resources to self-defense, somehow... This tiny, tiny nation, the size of Rhode Island, is outpacing the world in high tech. How is that possible? And it's because there's this special blessing that's connected with the Torah and the Jewish people. It's just, there's no other way to say it. And again, I'm not saying this from a rah-rah point of view or from a chauvinistic point point of view, God forbid. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this is another one of countless illustrations that the truth is contained in the Torah. And that those who attach themselves to it are attaching themselves to something way larger than themselves, way larger than what science has come up with at this point, has been able to prove at this point. We're way ahead of the curve. And that's something to embrace and to just celebrate. And so let me just conclude by saying that the primary day of celebration is tomorrow. (laughs) That's Simcha's Torah. Okay, Simcha's Torah is when we finish the Torah. And what do we do? We start right over again. We finish it and then we roll it back up and we go right back and we start it all over again. And... The Kutzka Rebbe says, what is it that we're celebrating because we're dancing with the Torah like for hours and hours and hours and hours? And, you know, the great thing is, is that we, we don't learn Torah on Simcha's Torah, the celebration of the Torah. All the Torahs are covered up. You would think like, Jews, come on, what are we going to do? We're going to sit and we'll learn all night. No, no, that's not Simcha's Torah. All the Torahs remain closed. Okay. And you just dance with them. And the Kutzka Rebbe says, what is it that we're celebrating on Simchas Torah? It's the realization that we've gotten to the end of the Torah and we know we haven't even begun it yet. (laughs) That we're swimming in these infinite waters. And then that in itself is the greatest cause of celebration. You know? Okay. So let's finish the holidays strong and it should be a great, 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 beautiful year.